0: Hello Sword People and welcome to this episode of The Sword Guy. I am your host for this show. My name is Guy Windsor and I've been teaching and researching historical martial arts for an extremely long time. Now, normally this section of the show is where I tell you about some courses or book or whatever that I have produced that I need you to go and buy so I can keep producing the show and keep feeding my children. But in this case, I want to draw your attention to the Wixenour project. So the Wiktan Hour is this gargantuan online repository of historical martial arts resources. So treatises and articles upon those treatises, high resolution scans, all sorts of things. When I'm working on any of my technical books, any of my research books, I use it pretty much daily. And it is a simply monumental undertaking. The person responsible for it is Michael Chidester. And he is actually on episode 21 of this very show. He recently started a Patreon account at patreon.com forward slash Michael Chidester, which is M-I-C-H-A-E-L-C-H-I-D-E-S-T-E-R. And I would heartily recommend, I would plead with you that you go and you support Michael because he is using the money to make historical martial arts a much more viable proposition for everybody on the planet it's a fantastic free resource it is okay if the internet was on fire and i could only save one historical martial arts resource it would be the wicta no question all of my stuff could go burn because the wicta is where we have this glorious library and repository of sources and scholarship upon those sources so Please, if you feel like supporting historical martial arts, go along to patreon.com forward slash Michael Chidister and be as generous as you can. Thank you. Now, on with the show. Hello, Sword People. This is Guy Windsor, also known as The Sword Guy, and I'm here today with Craig Johnson, who is a sword maker uh, who runs Arms and Armor, which is one of my favorite suppliers of swords? And uh, that's arms, ARMS hyphen, N hyphen, armor, com. And he is also, lucky bugger, secretary of the Oakshot Institute, which means he has legendary sword collectors, view at Oakshot's entire collection to play with. And in fact, probably half of the experiences I've had of holding original swords can be laid at Craig's feet because he was there with a great big bag of the things and he let us play. So without further ado, Craig, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: It's lovely to see you again. So just to orient everyone, whereabouts are you? Ah,
1: Minneapolis, Minnesota, hub of the sword world. Uh, <laughs> us day yeah uh yeah um, a little cold today but uh you know we're doing okay excellent and now
0: your day job is something of a kind of dream or an aspiration for many people some of whom listen to the show um so you make sores
1: all day is that correct uh i try to Yeah. Uh, okay. i got a shop of about seven people and Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, we launched a brand new website about a year ago. So, uh, much more of my day sometimes gets wrapped up in, you know, admin administration and paying attention to social media and things like that than I used to. Um, I, I prefer making swords all day. (laughs) So, (laughs) okay.
0: So how, how did that come about? I mean, how does one become a professional maker of swords?
1: Whoa. Uh, well, how did you do it? Uh, okay. <laughs> a, a firm commitment to the ideal that I had a liberal arts education and thought I could make money doing anything. Um, right. <laughs> uh, after that, it's a long yeah. and winding road of, uh, you know, I, I was really interested in this stuff because of probably Errol Flynn, you know, movies in the afternoon after school and grade school uh, Robin Hood, that kind of stuff. And, uh, just always was after that kind of thing. So my brothers and I were making bows and arrows and swords in the sumac around our house and having fights with bows and arrows and swords. And, um, he always paid attention to that kind of history and studied it, uh, went through college and came out with, Uh, a social studies history political science degree and was trying to find a job teaching in schools and was working construction took tax advice from the uh, construction crew and suddenly had to have like a real job and uh at in college i had met chris who owns arms and armor and a guy at his booth had taught me how to make mail uh in the shakespeare class in college I tried to get out of doing a five-page paper by doing a project, i.e. completing a mail shirt. Uh, not a good trade, but... Uh, <laughs> I spent, it, takes, it takes
0: less time to write a five-page paper. Yeah. Sure.
1: I spent th- almost three solid days during a blizzard in Fargo, North Dakota, uh, finishing a mail shirt for a Shakespeare class. <laughs> and, uh, but I... Kind of became legend in the Shakespeare class because of that. <laughs> um, yeah, the the teacher would always reference it for years after. But uh, so I did that. I got a mail shirt and had talked to Chris about swapping a mail shirt for a sword, and just you know continued that connection and was kind of helping him out in his shop, uh, doing little uh, jobs. How he was teaching me how to make a helmet. Um, I went into his place the next day and he had just got off the phone with, uh, Hank Reinhardt at Atlanta Cutlery and they had, uh, just signed, uh, for the first order where we were supplying some of Atlanta Cutlery's impact weapons. And I asked for a job and he said, you want a job before I could ask. So that's, wow. that's how I started. And, you know, from there started making armor, started making weapons, swords, uh, you know, we got into, we were doing the Renaissance fairs as a as a venue to sell, and Chris had got into those doing the Joust Act, and we started doing a Joust Act at Minnesota, so some of my first combat experiences were fully armored on horse combat um, wow. back in the 80s, so... <laughs> yeah <laughs> back before health and safety yeah well that you know our main target was hit him in the head the helmets are good we can't hurt each other <laughs> <laughs> and the <rest> is, is.
0: <laughs> so basically chris poor taught you how to make swords would that be correct
1: yeah yeah well we we've learned along the way a great yeah. deal you know well, when we okay. first were making swords and stuff um was a you know we were making swords as we thought they were um, Chris had some access to certain original pieces especially Asian stuff because of his father who was a professor of ancient Chinese bronzes um, okay but we uh, you know Chris as a as a, a teenager or young man even uh, less than a teenager got a gift from his dad of a Japanese armor original. Yeah. So wow. I know, <laughs> but you know, we were always around artifacts and stuff, and uh, never thought that we knew what we were doing in a sense of we know exactly how this is done, but we're always trying to do it better. So we had an insight to um, a trip to England to do research, and we uh, had an invite to Ewart Oakshott's house with a fellow that fellow backed out of the um, trip right at the end. So Chris and I just went, you know, went to all the places we were scheduled to go and just introduced ourselves and said, sorry, we're just showing up, but you know, this guy begged on us and we still want to, you know, meet you. And that's where we met. You were uh, David edge at the Wallace collection. Uh, We met a a collector out in uh, almost into Wales who had one of the two swords that I consider my kind of, you know, golden swords, or the you know the swords that I would love to have someday? Um, what sword is that? Uh, this was a hand and a half, uh, thin single-edged blade with a, about an eight-inch back tip edge on it, and uh, kind of a roped guard with uh, side rings and a kind of squashed pincushion pommel very thin little grip on it, Um, but the blade was uh, inscribed uh, Siege of Rome 1580 or something like that. Um, You know, it was literally a Lance Connect sword that somebody had used in the defense or attack of Rome. And uh, yeah, it was, you know, when you get to sit there and sip whiskey and tea in front of a 13th century fireplace in their little cottage with that sword on your knee that changes you genetically i think so yeah yes. you, you start losing thoughts of i'm going to be successful monetarily doing this and you just <laughs> focus on this is cool <laughs> you
0: know well, that's, that's the thing i mean if, the, if there is one one abiding thread to you know everything we've been doing for the last 20 years it's Swords are cool and there is no need for further explanation than that. That is a complete justification for what we're doing.
1: Yep. If that doesn't make sense with you, you don't get it. Exactly.
0: (laughs) Um, So you met, you were on this trip.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You were, um, and, uh, just, you know, one of the coolest human beings we ever met, uh, became friends, uh, continued for years to, um, interact and help out and uh near the end when he and Sybil were getting fairly old chris would go over periodically and stay with them for a given amount of time to help um some of the caregivers have a break and stuff so uh literally kind of kind of you know just were um scholars at the foot of a of a great teacher trying to help out as best we could um and as his, you know, kind of life came to the end, they were trying to decide what to do with the collection, and he had certain ideas about how he wanted it to continue on. And we were striving to help him find some place that would do that, and uh, that was a difficult task. So, what were the ideas? Well, he didn't want it, um, you know, in, in a glass box, someplace that no one could ever touch. He, he thought they were objects that were, you know, in his care for just a while and that they should go again to uh, be able to be uh, used and um, to educate, to teach people about the past and what they were as objects and to understand them. I mean, if you know that when you pick up a really old sword, you you start to understand in ways that you can't, unless you have that physical experience, how refined a three-and-a-half-foot steel fillet knife can be. Um, right. They are created right. with an objective and a knowledge that we don't have. You know, these are lethal weapons. And so... There's not many people out there with that kind of experiential understanding of the object as they had. And so we have to let those pieces teach us, you know, and he was very much of that idea. So he wanted it as kept together as a collection, if possible, because he wanted it to be used as a way to understand his typology. Because see, these are some of the swords that helped create it. And then he wanted it to be used to give other people that experience. He didn't want it behind a glass wall that you couldn't touch. Yeah, only in all very rare instances.
0: I, I've been at events where you've shown up with two enormous boxes, absolutely crammed with swords dating back. I think the oldest one was about three thousand years old. Yeah, the bronze. Yeah, and then and then you would just handing them out to people to feel what it feels like to hold the thing. And, you know, it is it is such... It's an experience where until you've actually had the experience, you don't understand how important it is. Mm-hmm. Because it's... The... Yeah, it's, it's what you were saying. The, the heft of the object gives you its purpose. And, well, I mean... It, I... I I only really understood Capifera's guard position with the weight on the back leg and you're kind of leaning back and your face is held back. When I went to the Wallace collection and David Edge very kindly got out a bunch of swords for me and I had a friend along with me and I got, I put a rapier into my friend's hand and told him to point it at me. And then I tried to approach him to string it. I was holding an antique. He was holding an antique. And for the first time ever, I naturally adopted Capifera's guard position. Yeah. <laughs> it was just like, I want my face as far away from that thing yeah. as possible. I want my sword as close to his sword as possible. How do I do it? Oh, my God, I'm in the guard position. How the hell did that happen?
1: Yeah. yeah that's, so. those, that, that is in and of the essence of what motivates me um, are those aha moments. Um, and I've had several over the years where an object – Teaches me something that I'm like, oh, I'm so stupid. <laughs> you know, human beings are <laughs> so. Yeah, we, we think we know what we're doing and we don't, you know? Like, um, I remember a backsword that you brought
0: to one event or another, I forget which. I put my hand in the guard and it was like, it was like some kind of future. This is like an early. 19th possibly mid 18th century backsword with a very small basket Mm -hmm. and it was like it was like some kind of sci-fi weapon where the protective shield kind of ripples out molds itself around your hand and then sets because it was like once my hand was in there i i would have to deliberately let go of the weapon to drop it and just relaxing my hand completely like let's say somebody whacked me in the arm with a stick and I had mm-hmm. no feeling in my hand at all, the sword would not have dropped. Yeah. It required literally nothing in my fingers at all to keep the sword attached to my hand. It was like, Oh my god, that's that's how I want my back swords to feel.
1: Yeah, it they should feel like they're extensions of your hand. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So when like I your- point a finger, that's where the point should be. You know, yeah. And where I yeah. If I if I bring my my hand to the side to protect myself, the blade should flow there. Yeah,
0: yeah. And the, the training that you made for me 15 years ago um, for my book, The Duelist Companion, it still does that. Cool. When I pick it up, it just it's like it's like I'm pointing with my finger, and the point just goes exactly where I want it to go. Mm-hmm. So case you're wondering whether you ever hit that ideal, let me assure you that you have.
1: <laughs> I try. I try. Yeah. That's, that's the Is Yeah. Every, uh, modern maker probably has to deal with this in their own way. Um, you know, it's the kind of thing Peter and I talk about a lot where there is a okay, Peter, Peter Johnson. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yep, yep. My brother of another mother. Yeah. Right. Um, do you build to the ideal of the original? Do you build to the exactness of the original or do you build to what the customer is asking for, which you realize is not anywhere close to the original, <laughs> you know? And, uh, you yeah, know, that's, that's a, a, uh, a choice so do you do have you make? to make, you know, what do you do? Yeah. Well, I, I always advocate for, they knew what they were doing way better than we did. Um, so, you know, using their examples is probably the best choice because they understood it on a level we will never. And I, it, this, is a, this is something you, you run into quite a bit doing reproduction and training weapons especially is there's that golden moment um, where you have been training with swords for three to eight months and you have a maybe an epiphanal moment or a, an idea tinks in your back of your brain and suddenly you feel like you've got an insight on sword play that no one has ever had before. And... You know, if you had a weapon that was like this, you could do whatever, you know? And um, that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, if, if you know what you're doing, any, any, any- sort <laughs> of will work just fine. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, human beings have been doing this for thousands and thousands of years. And when they were making them back then, it was the Einsteins and the Elon Musks that were doing weapons, armor, and that kind of stuff. And trying to take the physical materials and create something beyond the edge of the doable. Um, so your insight as a new sword fighter is great for you. And that's, that's, that's a motivational thing. You know, but we have to understand that anything we think of has been thought of probably about eight times before at least and sure. tried and abandoned, you know. Ipt- although although
0: um, we have much better quality steel and we have much finer tolerances in manufacture and what have you. So uh,
1: would old swords actually be better than a sword that's being made now? Uh, it depends on what you're defining as better you know okay. um, material wise yes the steely iron mix of original swords is something that you know i i get in the weeds about but is Got very on. much the kind of thing like your grandma used to make cookies pinch of this pinch of that and it was never quite Exactly the same amount, but they always taste delicious, right? Where today you can go and buy a cookie in a package at the gas station and it's super cheap and you open it up and it's exactly the same every time and it tastes like cardboard. So, you know, that that's, that's the materials, yes, are way better now but just because your materials are better doesn't mean you can make the design any less if that makes right. sense you know yeah um, the, the material quality doesn't necessarily compensate for design flaws right right so we we have steels today that you know are dialed in we know exactly what's in there we have temperature controls to within a degree or two uh, you know all these things and we know exactly what's happening when we quench something We quench it with very specific materials and times to create something that is, you know, right up to the edge of our our design envelope in a sense of what we're trying to achieve. They didn't have that. This is guys working in a shop that, you know, you you quit when it's dark because you don't have, you, you don't want to waste money on candles and lamps, right? And... So you know, oftentimes in certain areas they would have restrictions on when you could work, so that you weren't putting lights in your shop so you could work more than anybody else and have an advantage. Um, they had no ability to tell temperature other than looking at the at the colors of things. They had no ability to tell time other than maybe ditties or a sense of okay. It should take as long as this happens to do this. Um, And, you know, quenching, they are striving to imbue attributes into the material with the quenchants they use, which they have like a recipe book for in some cases. Um, That's one of the cool things about uh, HMS 3227A is the part right before the fighting stuff that everybody talks about is a recipe book for how to soften and harden metal and Does it work? oh yeah yeah if you're a smith and you read it you know that's i, I did a paper at kalamazoo on this where okay. you know if you're a smith and you read this you go yeah i know what they're doing you know um, I, could I we get put it, a copy of that paper in the show notes uh yeah sure yeah, I, and okay. you know, we've done. I've done actually a more updated version. Would be uh, I did a, a couple of blog posts, actually four blog posts, um, on okay. medieval heat treat on our on our website.
0: All right, I'll find those and I'll link to those in the show notes. So yeah, this is, yeah. High these the show notes, and you will find these things.
1: Yeah, because that's a, um, it it opens up the medieval mind. You know, if if there was one thing I could give people that are trying to do these kinds of things it's like getting a sense of the medieval mind helps you to understand how these things are laid out and processing in their heads you know and it will it'll change your perspective on how all of these things uh relate to you if that makes sense um sure. you know they they thought of heat treatment as, okay, I'm going to make this material and I'm going to dip it into a solution with this, this, and this in it. And I'm putting those ingredients in because I want attributes from those things in the material. And they had a very good sense of this. You know, like, like the uh, very early uh, words that the Norse used to describe blades. They're not talking about them being hard or about being uh, shattering like glass, or anything like that. They talk about them being tough and ropey, and um, you know, it, it having having a tenacity of strength in a sense, which indicates that while they knew about flexing and all these things, they also appreciated a blade that wasn't going to break on you. Um, the one of the yeah. best examples of that is. Uh, one of the things from 327A is they talk about um, taking a uh, blood serum, you know, where they let everything settle, and they take the material, the liquid off, the, off blood. You put it on a feather, and when you're tempering a blade, you run the feather down the edge of the blade when it's hot, and you're listening for a particular sound, and the sound they describe is... <laughs> Okay, <laughs> they literally write that in there, and that sound is. So what they've done is they've taken a blood product and using a feather can have turned it into a temperature device. Well, so what it's, does that actually do? Well, that tells you that you've tempered that material to the right kind of uh, hardness that you can sharpen it, but it'll be tough and hold an edge. Right? Because when you tell, when you how have you tried that. Okay, when you quench something, right, so when you initially are hardening a material, you quench it and you get it. And Today, we almost everybody does a full hard quench and then you temper it. You reheat it, but only up into, you know, a, a certain level that's going to be somewhere between like 800 and 1400 degrees or 1200, not not 14, that'd be too hot, but, um, but it'd be... You're so you're Fahrenheit. you're loosening some of the hardness in the material. Yeah, is, it, sorry, is, is this twelve hundred degrees Fahrenheit or centigrade? Uh, Fahrenheit. Sorry, yeah, uh, I, don't, okay. I don't deal centigrade too much. <laughs> I'm just working on including grams and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and centimeters and <laughs> millimeters.
0: <laughs> sorry, I'm Please carry
1: on. Okay. So, uh, yeah. So this. Um, so the quench you know, hardens it, and then the temper, you reheat it but not as hot so that it loosens the, the stiffness that you've created with the quench. Now, in the Middle Ages, they did mostly interrupt quenches uh, or what they call slack quenches where you dip it, but you only dip it quickly, and then you pull it back out after a certain, you know, couple of seconds at most, and the internal heat that's still in the piece is what does the tempering to the hardened edges. So so you're going to have a variable hardness in any medieval sword. Okay. Mm -hmm. The through hardnesses that we get in modern swords, where they're between, uh, you know, 50 and 52 hardness on the Rockwell scale, or, you know, that that's just, that's not done in the middle ages. Okay. That's just not, if your sword is like that, it's not replicating a medieval sword. Right. But that's what everybody wants in modern, you know, ideals. The idea that 50 Rockwell is a good hardness for a sword, for a medieval sword is fine today, but it's probably too hard for your average medieval sword. Most of them are going to be down in the low 40s. And that's a, a product or a, a you know an effect of our modern material sciences and all those things, and then a less than full understanding of medieval sword blade materials uh, from you know a generation or two ago. Especially nowadays, we have much more information on that. Um, you know, uh, people like Williams, uh, Doctor Williams, who have you know been publishing works on this for a while. And you got people like Fabris doing great research and Peter. You you know, we start to understand these things.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. We start to understand these things in ways that um, allow us to appreciate their work even more, but realize that sometimes our modern pursuit of this kind of, um, you know, uh, ideal perfectness is just something that isn't there in the medieval ideal, you know. So, sure. uh, symmetry, you know, they, they 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 would do symmetrical, but it wasn't like their main objective. And so sometimes you will see a guard on an arm that's, you know, a quarter inch longer on one side than the other. Or you'll see, you know, a style of decoration on one side of a sword and a different style on the other side of it. Um and, you know, maybe they were done at different times or, you know, you'll see weapons that have a, you know, decided lean or lopsidedness to them. And, you know, some of that's probably from use other times it's like, you know, they didn't get wrapped up in that or in the case of something like you see these, a lot of the discussions of Norse swords with the cocked pommels, um, It's probably a process of either uh, intention, you know, that they decided, hey, this works a little better if it's cocked, or because of the materials, because those tangs are all going to be soft iron, it's an effect of, if you use the sword, that happens. Okay. Okay, because those, uh, iron is a really soft, ductile material. If there's no carbon in it, you can't kind of work hard in iron. Yeah. So... Um, You know, with the the minimal amount of material that's in a tang, anybody could take their hands, grab the blade or the guard and the pommel and give it a little twist with their hands. You don't need a hammer or you don't need a a, a armor to do that. Um, I would guess that a lot of them happen just from use. That the torques of your hand moving that material, because you know how much force you can create. Sure. With with a three foot sword, right? Yeah, it,
0: I had this discussion with um, vartika and he he was an earlier guest on this podcast, and yep. I can't remember whether it, it is that discussion happened during the podcast or in the discussion afterwards. But one way or the other, I've got I've got him on 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 uh, on tape actually talking about how his theory is that they are these pommels are deliberately turned to basically fit a right hand or a left hand better. And I think his theory is that it's deliberately done in the making process, but if it's something that would just happen naturally and things, it hasn't been corrected. The pommels are still like that. Yeah. So so one would imagine that it's something that maybe like breaking in a shoe.
1: Yep. Yeah. Roland thinks, you know, he thinks there's more deliberateness to it than I probably do. Just okay. because I know how soft iron is. I mean, like the, the old the old muscle guys in the sideshows, right? They would bend the yeah. bars over their head and stuff. Those are iron bars. They're not steel, yeah. right? Because yeah. an iron bar, one, you can bend it back straight for the next show. And two, is it softer than steel? Yeah, uh, yeah no, yeah, but yeah, anything, uh, you know, I really appreciate Roland's approach to, to looking at these things and researching and sharing it because it's, well, you know, I, I've had like at least two epiphanal moments with Roland at different times where. Um, <laughs> yeah, he's good for us. Yeah, I was. Uh, one of the best was that uh, we were down at um, Western Martial Arts Workshop, and I was in the tent, and I'd been talking to somebody earlier in the day about something, and there's this thing I call the, um, the active rotational point on a sword. Right. Um, where because you are gripping a sword in variable ways during its use and because of the design of swords in how the all the components that you put into it interact with themselves as an object the spot the sword wants to rotate around itself in front of you in a fight changes so sure. it moves up and down the blade and you can, yeah, I'm actually, I'm actually teaching a class on that
0: okay, in terms cool. of its
1: practical applications. Um, yeah.
0: on, on Sunday evening, yeah, and, and it's months and a couple of months ago by the time people are listening to this, but it's just funny coincidence that you mention it now,
1: and I'm teaching about it this week, yeah. And it's you know, and it's something that I had you know evolved thinking about swords over time. And I called it this you know, active rotational point, and I was explaining it to somebody in the tent when I was trying to sell them a sword. And then Roland comes running over, you know, a couple hours later. He's like, Hey, you were telling this guy? And he's like, Yes, yes. You know, and it, you know, it's one of those things where people accuse us of having cabals because suddenly somebody says something and somebody goes, Oh, yeah. And, you know, you're down a rabbit hole and you can just see people around you going, Oh my god, what are they talking about? And but the two people talking are like completely in sync and no, you know? It's the same thing that happens with me and Peter when we sit down where you know, yeah. oh a blade does it, yeah, yeah, you know, and it's like we lose people pretty quick. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in polite society anyway.
0: <laughs> yeah, but okay, this is not polite society. This is Guy's podcast,
1: and everyone listening is mad about swords. So, um. <laughs> Yeah, that's yeah. Those are, I love those moments, man. Oh, that's it makes it all worth it. Absolutely. So um,
0: I imagine if if these medieval swords are heat treated, uh, but they're not heat treated all the way through, um, the way modern swords are, and they're a lot softer, they're likely to take a lot more damage.
1: Um, in certain areas. Yep. Yeah. Um. It, And it literally is the kind of thing where the few blades that have been mapped out for hardness over their kind of expanse are averaging from a little bit harder than what I would suggest for a sword to much less to dead soft throughout the blade in areas sometimes. Um, Usually the edges are harder. Sometimes the edges have been added in a sense out of better material. And there's a variety of different ways they would construct the blades to do that. Um, So your edge retention at 50 Rockwell with a modern steel is probably a little bit better than you would see in a medieval blade, but not so much that it's probably going to, you know, that we got a ways to go before we have to worry about that difference in our understanding of how these things happened. Um, but the ideas that kind of creep into modern thought on this are of this material. Material should last, you know, be be impervious to their use in a sense. Mm-hmm. Um, you see this a lot with like wooden halves for pole arms.
0: Um, yeah, which well, are entirely
1: um, so. They're, they're like. They're like the
0: refills in a pen.
1: Yeah, yeah, and you know if, like, you, if you've so got, yeah to me right the yeah.
0: whole parts are inherently you
1: know exchangeable, right? And you and you have the difference between a sapling grown to be a haft in a cold environment in Northern Europe in the Middle Ages with very tight grain growth, taken down and you know left as a as a um, circular grain structure through its length and then being mounted on a, on some kind of a spear or on a, uh, pull weapon. And then modern wood cut, you know, and you go for as tight a grain as you can, but all the grains going front to back, hopefully. Um, and you know, you, you, you do what you can to make it as durable as that piece was in the Middle Ages, but the one in the Middle Ages probably had a little more flex to it, and that's you know, it's, it's like making bows. Yeah, you have to get the
0: grain. The back of a bow, the grain has to run from end to end unbroken for best results. Right. And so when I'm making like a pearlax handle or a spear handle or whatever, that's basically what I'm trying to do. Even if I'm using modern wood, I'm trying right. to get continuous grain from one end to the other.
1: Yeah, and that's not easy. Yeah. Yeah, it's, you know, go out and find yourself an inch and a half by inch and a half square piece of wood with straight grain that doesn't, you know, go off one edge or the other.
0: But that's um, the thing. It doesn't, you know, a pole does not have
1: to be dead straight. No, it doesn't. But if you're swinging it like a baseball bat with all the weight on the forward end and hitting a hard target that's locked down. You know, the physics of it are, you know, human beings can break just about anything with the physics being right.
0: Sure. Um, what, what I mean is, is to me, it's more important that the grain, or the, the wood fibers run from one end to the other, regardless of straightness, mm-hmm. so that when I do hit it, it has that flex and that, that ability to absorb shock. Yep, exactly. Yep. That's that's the trick. Um, so, Yeah, you must have seen some pretty horribly damaged swords in your time. (laughs) What was the
1: worst? Oh, man. Uh, Oh, let's see. Um, Well, back in the day, uh, you know, most stage combat was done with rebated swords that were basically swords, but just rounded edges, Right. Yep. And we got one back once from a show as a rental, and we actually sawed a two-by-four-and-a-half with it. Wow. It looked like a saw when it came out of the box. Yeah. Um, I've gotten a Fectorspiel back for repair that um, literally the guard had been bent in a real good U-shape backwards. Okay,
0: just to put that in context, I have a fetus feel on the wall next to me right now that I bought from Arms and Armour in 2007, I think. And it's been my go-to standard training blunt longsword ever since. I don't know how many thousand times it's been hit with stuff. And it is in... Yeah, I filed off a few burrs, and I've cleaned it probably less often than I should have, but it has stood up
1: without any trouble whatsoever. Yeah. It's probably got about 15 years in it. Yeah. You know, the only way I could make a guard look like that, that I know of is, you know, stick it over the horn of the anvil and hit it with a three pound hammer. Maybe they, maybe they kind of rested it on a rock and accidentally drove over it with a truck. Uh, well, no, it was a U shape back towards the palm. Wow. So, oh uh, you know, I, I, didn't ask. <laughs> you see, you know, sometimes you just don't want to know. Um and uh but you know, that was pretty bad, you know. Uh Okay. Lately a lot of what I've been seeing is grip abuse. Um grip You know, we're yeah, people are are um the the amount of blows being taken on the grip have seen an oh, increase see right. in the last 10, 15 years quite a bit.
0: Oh, okay. That's funny because, you know, I've probably replaced the leather on my training flexor spiel four times maybe. Mm-hmm. And yeah, if you're fencing with it, you will get like a, a, a sword cut comes in and it goes between your hands, thank God, and stops on the handle and splits right. the leather. Um, so, yeah, that, that, that would happen, I guess. Yeah, yeah. But, you have know, been in this game for like a really long time. So, oh yeah how how has like the, the taste of the sword buying public changed?
1: Oh geez, um, yeah, from when we first started, uh, you know, the the few people that were working with steel uh, doing any kind of uh, kind of um, you know work on the historical methodologies. You know, we started using rebated swords. um, And then, you know, over time, everybody shifted to wood for a while. Um, But you see a change in the... There's always trends, you know, and particular attributes people are emphasizing. So sometimes it'll be, um, you know, everybody wants... The cog way back towards the guard, you know, back in the 90s, especially, you know, oh, some things. people uh, center of gravity, yeah, where a sword balances uh, it, when it's an object on its own, where it balances, you know, uh, yeah. moving around and stuff. So, that particular time period, some people had the idea that the cog should be right at the guard. Oh. Uh, yeah, uh, That's horrible. Well, yeah, but it, it's, it, it, it's, it's really easy to pick up and move around. <laughs> but it's not because you have to
0: do all the work of moving it. Yeah. Whereas if you have the center of gravity, I mean, my, I, I generally go on a longsword about four, five fingers, something yeah. like that. Mm-hmm. Kind of depends. Um, maybe five fingers for a more of a cutty, wacky thing and maybe three and a half, four for a, something which is more, should we say, elegant. Yeah, but you want that you want that weight in the blade, so that you only have to get the sword moving once, and then you just kind of keep adding to its momentum, and it will just keep going forever. Yeah, get like And, it-
1: and it, all the intentions of your actions were, are specifically generated into the blade through having that forward balance. Um, exactly. You know, and. You know, if, if if somebody's thrusting at you with a sword that's got the uh, cog right at the guard, it's pretty easy to just displace the point completely. Um, yeah. That's you know, not have to it. Yeah. Um, the other thing, uh, uh, well, in the last five, six years is super wide blades for cutting.
0: Uh, uh, know, that,
1: okay. The big 18s, you know. Um that, that's suddenly become the thing to have. By eighteen um, you mean type eighteen, yeah? Yeah, the the sword type yeah, yeah. The type eighteen. Uh, will link to
0: the sword typology stuff in the show notes so that yeah. the graph look that Yeah. The
1: the eighteens have always been popular, but the big wide ones um have, you know, as cutting has become a competitive thing at tournaments and such. Um the you know like a type thirteen you can you know it's still tough to sell those except to a couple people that really like early swords. Fifteens mm-hmm. uh, come and go, even though they're one of my favorite fighting swords. Uh, the long tapering, okay. you know, Black Prince kind of blade uh, yeah, 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 those are those are. Right know, hang out. Yeah, well, it's a Fiore. It's it's yeah, you know, his sword right kind of thing. <laughs> um, And then, uh, you know, like type 20s, you know, there's a couple people that like them. And, uh, you know, because you get into the... A a lot of times people are focused on what a sword looks like in their mind than what was used in the period they're trying to replicate or the style they're trying to use. And so you get these things that are, um, uh, you know, people trying to well, I want this kind of sword, but I want it to look like that. And they're like, well, that didn't happen, but we can try and do that for you. But it just makes it harder to make a good sword. Yeah, um, so. Right, so. And then you have, you know, things that, like on a sword today, we know much more about uh, adding the little things that they did that are there as, as aids or indicators for you as a fighter. Um, you know, earlier I talked about one of my, you know, two, my two favorite swords. Well, the, the second one is the Swiss, Swiss saber in the Wallace collection. Oh, I sword. Um, yeah, I made a reproduction of that and doing the reproduction and looking and studying that original taught me more about longsword in ways that I didn't even understand until I was done with it. Than just about anything, because How that thing's that? well, it's a it, that thing's a Lamborghini. It's designed to be a a a, a longsword um, on steroids, uh, because you have all these attributes on there uh, that are specifically giving you tactile responses if you're holding the weapon in ways that you don't even think about what you're doing. So um, let's see here. I, I want to explain this clearly because it's, it's really interesting. Um, that particular sword has a slightly curved blade. So when you do a turn, you have a leverage, right? If, if our blades are in death and I, rotate my hand slightly, suddenly I've got more leverage than you do because of that curve. The back edge of that sword has a, has a straighter area up where the um, sharpened point is, and then steps down and has a long area that's lower, and then steps back up before it gets to the hilt. Well, those are tactile indicators for in the vor, in des, or in the nach. Right. So when I've got you on the back edge of that sword, the instant your sword hits that lower point on the sword, I know that I'm stronger than you no matter what I do. Right. But you don't have to go. Am I in this? Am I in the strong point? You've got the sword going tick and telling you. Right. It's got a thumb ring. So the whole sword, you can wind in all directions with two fingers in your thumb at most. Mm-hmm. Right? So that when I go to wind that sword, it really doesn't matter how hard of a grip I have on it because I can rotate it around fast with the, you know, it's the time of the fingers in a sense and the time of the hand or time of the arm or anything else. And because of that rotational point on the thumb, Um, Well, you've used sabers with thumb rings, right? Yeah,
0: I'm familiar with, I've I've even
1: used um, Swiss sabers with thumb rings before. Yeah, yeah. If the thumb ring is placed right, you can just kind of let go of the whole sword and just use your curled thumb to kind of control, you know, what's going on. And so you've got the sword telling you when you're in those positions, the sword's moving with the actions of just a few fingers of your hand, The grip is designed so that super thin secondary grip up above the the midpoint there. uh, In my ideas, those grips get super thin because you're not to hinder the pommel, right, when you are rotating or winding the sword. It's so that the sword can wind inside your backhand without any resistance. Because you don't really need that backhand on the sword until you're making contact or until you're using the leverages of the sword against the other sword, right? So you can kind of just let that other the backhand just, just sit back there and fly around it, not really grip it at all until you need it. And then there's a thumb uh, or there's a riser slightly back from the edge on that sword. Um, and this is one of the swords that taught me this where um, these risers – that you see the, the ribs around in the midpoint usually, and then oftentimes at the at the forepoint of the next to the guard on a grip, and then at the pommel. Uh, sometimes there'll be multiples on there in a decoration, but a lot of times you'll see in these later long swords a riser that's half to three quarters of an inch back from the guard, and it kind of right. bulges out. Well, if you place the tip of your thumb against that riser and have it using as a kind of tactile indicator of where the sword is, but you can also use it in the wind to kind of power the sword off your thumb. And if you're not hindering that back end, that, that riser allows you a much quicker wind and turn of the sword than you know, having your thumb up on the blade like you know a lot of the KDF guys do and stuff. Um, I think it's a later development where they've said, "Well, if we don't, if we let the thumb come back on the grip a little bit and have this riser there, we get the same the same effort with le- or the same result with less effort." Wow, that's interesting. Huh. So you get yeah. all those components in this one sword, yeah. and it it flies, it moves wonderfully in the hand, you've, you've and. Oh, yeah, and the – and another thing is it's got all these uh, guard uh, arms that come down and stuff, so it looks like you could throw your finger over it. But when you actually have it in your hand, it really – you can't. Those guards go down and and create that thing, so you've got a good, solid base for that thumb ring, and you create – those arms there are supporting other elements of the guard. And then it's also got the knuckle knuckle bow that comes back and things like that, you know. So, I just I just think that sword is just you know like somebody who really knew was probably more of the Lichtenauer tradition of how to fight. Really said, let's make the sword that you know is is got all of the things that you need to make this exceptional.
0: Yeah. Now, obviously, I'm going to have to get pictures of this and put them in the show notes so people can see the riser and the, the little little bit on just behind the back edge, just at the end of the back edge where it stops being sharp. There's that little kind of little square nub. Yeah. Uh, um, talking about. So, uh, I will definitely be, be getting photos and putting them in the show notes. And and you've reproduced this sword,
1: right? Yeah, we've made it a couple of times, and we actually have, you know. Uh, we would love to make it as a regular product. Uh, we've been kind of working on that for a long time, but, um, you know, it's something that we hope to do someday because uh, I'm guessing it would be very expensive. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of things getting all the components together. Um, you know, the blade's got a lot of dimensional dynamics, um, that kind of thing. So it, it, it's not yeah, an you... easy sword to make, but man, you know, and and the thing bit me good too when I was making it and I still love it. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> it it was one of those ones where I was, you know, wiping the blade off and it yeah. sliced into my thumb and I didn't even feel it. So I only oh, noticed really. it when I went to lift my hand and the sword came with it because it was so embedded in my thumb. <laughs>
0: <laughs> wow. So Yes but 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 yeah, you want a sword with a bit of bite to
1: it and the character. Yeah, that's That's another thing that's changed a lot since the early days is, you know, there's a variety of sharpness. And you know, what people are after for sharpness is something that changes relatively regularly.
0: (laughs) I imagine like for tatami cutting you want it just as sharp as it can be got.
1: Oh yeah, but, you know if you're if you're
0: trying to slice yeah. something. But um. for I mean, I use I use sharp swords for basically three things: either for solo drills, uh, for cutting targets like tatami or whatever, and for pair drills, sharp against sharp. And I have three mm. different swords, three different jobs because the, you know, the 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 cutter is a gorgeous Damascus bladed thing that jt Palika made me oh my lord that thing is a lightsaber um i've got um it's actually oh oh my god i'm so sorry craig it is an albion sword <laughs> which is my usual solo drill sword because basically what happened was one of my students had it and they didn't need it anymore and so we did a trade or whatever, and i ended up with it um it's, it's a lovely sword nothing against albion no um, they, they make great swords man <laughs> Um, and then I have um, a few well actually you know, my my these days my go-to f- uh, for sharp on sharp training is these machetes that you can buy if you buy like a dozen of them you can get them for about $4 each yeah it's totally disposable you can sharpen them up a bit re-grind them a bit whatever shape you want and then you can do sharp on sharp drills and it costs nothing and they, they basically they wear out um, oh, yeah. So, but you were saying you, pe- people's desires for sharpness change over time. So, what, what, well, why it's, would anybody
1: have like a sword? Well, you, you have people that are, um, you know, do they, are they going to do tatami cutting? You know, we, when people order swords, you know, they're like, well, and I wanted extra sharp. And I said, like, for tatami cutting? And they're like, yes, okay. We call that sneaky snack in the shop. Um, <laughs> okay you know if they want a sharp sword like a medieval sword I'm not going to take it that sharp because you are looking when you look at the originals they really do not seem to have those kind of tatami-esque edges they come sharp they'll slice you but in a lot of ways you know a, a especially like a long sword is going to use thrusting and the impact of the cut as part of its, its uh, interaction with you. So especially in the mid and the, and the um, back of the blade, you're going to have probably a little more beef in that edge to take some of the interaction with other swords a little better than a tatami type edge.
0: Are we are we talking mostly about edge geometry or the level of polish?
1: Um, some of it's going to be edge geometry, um, and some of it's going to be that that last bit of honing. Um, Your uh, when you when you take two sharps against each other, and you interact in that three dimensional space of a fight, it does affect an understanding of how these things um hang to each other bite each other in a sense and something where you know you come in and you're displacing a blade and you know with your with your trainer it just slides you know or the other guy you know you got to really work at controlling staying small with your action to control the blade and stuff with a sharp you'll you'll suddenly feel like okay i've got him you know, I can feel my my ability to control it a little better. And yeah, it's, so, it's not. Like,
0: it's I mean the the bind the bind with sharp swords is a bind. The bind mm-hmm. with sharp swords isn't.
1: Yep. And what I've yeah. and what I've found is when I take a real sneaky snack sword and a more medieval, what I call a medieval edge or a sharp sword, um, that sharp sword will bite the sneaky snack more. Sure, and so you can you know in essence the this the tatami sword's going to get a little more damage to it, but it also is maybe a little less has a little less ability to to influence the other sword in a way, um, and that you know and then suddenly you get down to you know minuteness of. You know, what angles are they coming together and are you binding in the bind and, you know, all that kind of stuff that, um, you know, most of us are probably never going to be at a level of understanding and and touch in the sword, foot, uh, sword fight that it makes any difference to us. Um, yeah. But that's, you know, that's one of those things that is always going on in the world of uh, this stuff where people... Um, well, it's, yeah, as a sword maker, you know, people come to me and, and it's like, you know, they say, well, what's the best sword, right? <laughs> and, and uh, you know, and, and it's... That's the best car. It depends. Yeah. Are, are you taking six of your friends
0: to the pub or are you trying to get from A to B really fast or are you trying to impress girls? I mean, three different things.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I always look at them and I'm like, you know, I, I'm a sword maker. I'm here to sell you a sword. But if I'm honest, I got to tell you, the best sword is the one that's in your hand when you need it. And it is your mind that makes the difference, not the sword. Right. And yeah, you the, know? The,
0: some, some swords, I pick them up and just put them straight down again. Other swords, I pick them up, and they kind of just get stuck to my hand and want to come home with me. And, you know, somebody else will have the reverse response to that. And they're both perfectly excellent
1: swords. Yeah, it is really personal. Yep, yep. Um, I always tell people, who would you rather face, the best sword fighter in the world with a stick or the worst sword fighter in the world with the best sword? (laughs) You know? Yeah, easy question. (laughs) It's no fun getting beaten to death. No, no, it isn't. Plus, if you beat the worst guy, then you get his sword, right? <laughs> oh,
0: yeah. <laughs> um, this might get a little bit off topic, but I seem to remember you, you telling a story which I have recounted many times, and I just want to make sure I'm getting the details right. Okay. There was a king who wanted some greaves made that they could be, and, and he wanted them heat-treated and blued, and there's this, there's this correspondence between the maker and the sort of the king's you know, agent or secretary or whatever. Um, and the, the maker is trying to explain that you can have the bluing or the, or the kind of the tough heat treating, but not both. Cause they destroy each other. Does that ring a bell with you?
1: Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah, it was, uh, I think it was a Habsburg, one of the, one of the ones of the King of Spain and his secretary is writing to a German armorer. And he's, if I remember correctly, maybe Nuremberg, but he's, um, you know, saying, yes, the king does want the bluing and the gilding and the heat treat on the armor. And the guy writes back saying, well, we can do the heat treat or we can do the bluing and the gilding, but you can't make the armor hard and then fire it again to put on the gilding and the bluing and all that stuff. And the guy writes back saying, yes, he would like all three. <laughs> you know, and that's, you know, that's where you just up the price and do it anyway, because you know, the king isn't going to be out there using it <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. and charge sorry, him want- for it. <laughs> and then
0: uh, he treating. Yeah. And then heat would have been destroyed by the bluing and the gilding, but it wouldn't matter because, and also, you know, if the armor fails catastrophically, the king is in no position to complain.
1: Right, exactly. know. Yeah, so... Yeah, that's you know the customer expectations is you know a good part of my job sometimes. Um, Just how you know how do you how do you achieve what you would like to have in the ramifications of we have to deal in real world physics, we have to deal in real world materials, and we have to deal in a budget that you know you have princely ideals and a <laughs> commoner's budget <laughs> okay. yeah, that, 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 that is that is
0: definitely an issue um yeah i, mean, I used to work as a cabinet maker and i i remember there were some clients who were like okay this is my budget and i need this to happen um does that work and there are others who are like, well, I'd like you to do this and this and this and this and this and this. And what you're looking at is weeks and weeks and weeks of work. And then when you explain how much that's going to cost, they look at you like you've just grown an extra head. Like, what? Yeah. They have no idea what they're actually asking for. Um, so is there anything you wish that most historical martial arts practitioners understood about sword making?
1: Oh, man.
0: Uh Yeah. Well here's your chance. Most listeners.
1: <laughs> tell them you um, done. tell them. Yeah. Uh, you know that the really um, try to understand the arts as they are depicted in your training from the historical uh, uh, descriptions. Um, There is a huge amount of human existence that went into developing and practicing and, uh, in in a sense, trying to perfect those arts in their time when they were used, when these guys were aware of all the negatives and positives of what they had and today sometimes um we get into this modern mindset of i want it to be perfect or i want this um thing that the tool becomes the focus as opposed to the art um You know, as a sword maker, I want to sell you swords. But at the same time, a sword doesn't make you a good sword fighter. Sure. And so understanding that, you know, if they did things in a certain way, that's probably the best way at that time you could figure it out. Um, You know, today I see people really struggling with... You know, change, They're changing the, the items from the historical model to be um, part and parcel with other, other choices they've made, like safety. And I'm not advocating not being safe with something. But if your gauntlets are so large that you have to extend your grip a couple inches to make the sword usable in the way you were, you know, your, the art you're using... Then you're altering it, and so don't get hung up on doing it that way with this with this product because you know you're trying to you're trying to put a round hole in a, squ- or a square peg in a round hole. Um, you know, got, we had a blog post about this about gauntlet size and stuff, and so we got you know an original gauntlet made out of metal laying next to a modern protective yeah oh it's it's huge right? like, yeah. It's, it's yeah a steel
0: one is, usually it's it's like you, you think my fingers are fatter than that when you look at the, the gauntlet
1: yeah but it's it's yeah. just there to protect you when you haven't done the art correctly that's that's one of the things a lot of people in armor don't or that want to do armor fighting don't realize it's, it's, sorry about that yeah (laughs) Um, uh, yeah, okay (laughs) uh, yeah the um, the art or the uh, armor is not designed to make you impervious the armor is not designed to make you impervious yeah but is designed for when your defensive actions in the fight have not been successful. Right. And so armor was never designed to be like, okay, I'm going to, you know, load up and be a tank and just power through people. Um, that's kind of a modern idea of of armored combat where in the period and in the style and construction of the original armors, we can see it's, it's light It's designed to be there that if you get a hand hit, this will protect you, but it's not designed to be able to take somebody pounding on your hand with a pole ax for a week. Um, So that's a, that's a distinctly different objective, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's a lot to think about. So, um, just I, There are a couple of questions that I no, normally conclude a, these interviews with, and I'm going to change them a little bit because okay. it's you. Um, <laughs> so so I, you spent the last very long time making swords and building a business to basically to – I'm getting the feeling that the business exists to enable the sword making. It's oh, so you can to make
1: swords all day. Yeah, I mean, it beats having a real job as long as the checks don't bounce. Um, <laughs> exactly. So, so
0: um, what is the best idea? I mean, the best idea you've had that you acted on probably was, you know, getting into sword making. But what is the best idea you've had that you've not acted on?
1: Oh, oof. Man. Um. I, you know, I think one of the things that I always really thought would be a valuable thing for the study of all things medieval would be some kind of, uh, of collection or a of, of focus. Well, Keith, you, Keith Alderson, Dr. Keith Alderson, you, you remember I Keith. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, Germanicist, just you know, had several epiphanal moments with the guy over the years. Um, But when we were coming back from a Western martial arts workshop once, we thought, you know, if we could find a small, one of these small college campuses closing up and turn it into kind of a, a research scholar center for craft and research and language and, and history of the middle ages where you get, the interaction of all the disciplines right. and you get people that are um creating uh you know research and studying not only how swords were made and the material uh, uh materials used but also the how the the pieces were used and how the um brewing was done and how butchering was done and how all those components could come together. Because when you look at the, you know, like the recipes for the swords, well, they're talking about using buck's blood when it's in heat. Well, you know, then somebody's (laughs) got to go out and get a buck when they're in heat, you know, and those kind of things and see what all of that stuff, you know, when, when we do have descriptions from the past, they're telling us what it was. And they're not doing a huge amount of, there's a super secret thing that we're not going to tell you. But they do describe it in ways that the medieval mind has understood that maybe we don't because we're so affected by this idea of like, well, we know all this stuff. You know, we, don't. we have to a reference. Yeah.
0: Um, okay, so actually, my usually my next question is and somebody gives you an ungodly sum of money to spend improving historical martial arts worldwide. I'm guessing you would spend it on that sense that we just talked about.
1: Oh, uh, yeah, if it was an ungodly amount, because that would take you know a million billion bucks. But, <laughs> um, you know, even if I had a, a reasonable amount of money, you know, you know what, I would probably do with a reasonable amount of money. I would probably try and fund research into the record the legal records of the guilds and the merchants that we have surviving um, we keep we keep finding these tidbits these things that enlighten us about how and what they were doing with their, uh, industry and their ideas uh, from legal records, you know, people suing people, uh, people killing people, you know, I think there's probably a vast amount of information that would be pertinent to our understanding of combat and how armor and weapons were produced and made and, and uh, used and uh, documented and all those things that we just don't get because nobody's, you know, trolling through 1560 Nuremberg who sued who for being, you know, somebody that shouldn't be kind of thing. So in, in the center of yours, there would actually be a legal scholar
0: as well as – Oh, definitely, uh, definitely. A <laughs> yeah.
1: that's,
0: that's fascinating. That is a, that's a brilliant idea. Yeah. Yeah. I, the problem is everyone I ask that question has such a good idea. I always end up saying, you know what, if I had the money, I'd give it to you. and. <laughs> Sadly, I don't. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I spent, uh, I, spent you know, I spent the last twenty years swinging swords around rather than founding PayPal. <laughs> yep. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah.
1: Yeah. Oh well. No, my, we're all just we're all just waiting for that one sword student to win the lottery, right? <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that's a wonderful note to finish on, Greg. Thank you very much indeed for talking to me today.
1: Oh, thanks for having me, man. It's, uh, you know, we should do this more often with pints.
0: Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation today with Craig Johnson. Remember to go along to guywindsor.net forward slash podcast for the episode show notes, uh, which include transcriptions and, of course, a picture of the Swiss saber that he mentions. I should also mention that the transcriptions particularly are there courtesy of my wonderful patrons on patreon.com forward slash the sword guy. And as ever, a grateful shout out and thanks to both new patrons and existing ones. My patrons are apparently a fairly shy bunch and they tend to prefer not to be credited by name, but um, I see you and I see what you do. So thank you very much for your support. Let me also please remind you that if you could go along to patreon.com forward slash Michael Chidester and support the incredible Wichtenauer project, that would be that would be extremely helpful. Tune in next week when I'll be talking to Beth Hammer, who is an artist and an extraordinary artist at that. I have seen much of her work, and it is a delight. Well, some of it is a delight and some of it is rather challenging. And that's what good art is supposed to be like. So the reason she's on the show is because not only is she an artist, she's also a fairly high level armored combatant in the Battle of the Nations uh, scene. To be honest, I don't know a great deal about Battle of the Nations, which is one of the reasons why I have, got beth onto the show to tell us about it and we have a fascinating conversation which include things like throwing thing, throwing people through fences if that sounds like your sort of thing make sure you tune in next week so to make sure you don't miss that please subscribe to this show wherever you get your podcasts from and while you're there if you wouldn't mind rating it or reviewing it that would be marvelous it really helps to spread the word so thanks for listening and i will see you next week